But gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that you would be pleased to speak to us, and by your spirit that you would lead us to listen to you. We recognise that what you are teaching us tonight is controversial in some ways, but your word is good. Lead us to trust in you and to love what you have to say, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. God hates divorce. I hate divorce. How can anyone not hate divorce? Divorce rips apart a relationship and it tears apart a promise. And so no divorce can ever truly be neutral in its effect. Every divorce causes some pain to some people at the very least. And so we, like God, should hate divorce. But does that mean that divorce should never be an option? And does it also mean that anyone who's divorced has done wrong? No. The Bible does not say that every divorce is wrong. And it does not say that every divorcee has done wrong. Even though God hates divorce, he permits divorce. And even though we hate divorce... We know that divorce is sometimes unavoidable. And that's what we're going to see today as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 24. Uh, this is the 14th talk in our 32-week series on 1 Corinthians. And this whole chapter here in chapter 7 is about marriage and divorce and singleness and sex. And today we're particularly focusing on issues related to divorce and separation and remarriage. I think it's right to say that everybody has been affected by divorce. You may be divorced and are still feeling the pain of the broken relationship. You may be a child of divorced parents and you still feel the impact of their actions. You may be the parent of a divorced child and your heart still aches for your son or daughter's failed marriage. You may be the friend or the colleague or the relative of someone who's divorced and you see the ongoing effects of their broken marriage. God hates divorce and so do we. Because in the end, we all feel the pain of divorce. Whether it's your divorce or the divorce of someone you know and love. And even though our world now is a new fondness for marriage, it still is a fondness for divorce. Because after all, the world says that the greatest love of all is happiness. I just want them to be happy. I want to be happy. I don't mind what they do I, as long as they're happy. Which means that if divorce is bad, well, there's something worse. And that is 
being sad. Our world believes that sadness is worse than divorce. And so this pursuit of happiness has now trumped the integrity of marriage in our society. But it's not quite that simple, is it? When someone says that they weren't happy in their marriage, it may well be because their spouse had broken their marriage promises and that that spouse has brought harm to their husband or wife. For them, it's not about happiness. It's about safety. And even though we hate divorce, we know that that's the unfortunate result of failed marriages. So when is divorce okay and when is it not? Well, that's one of the things we're going to find out now as we hear God speak to us in the Bible. But let me first have a word to the people in our room who are separated or who are divorced. God loves you and so do we. We recognise that the events that have led to your divorce or a separation are painful and complicated because divorce is painful and complicated. And we want to show you our love and our support as we seek also to help all our marriages avoid divorce where we can. We want you to feel safe. We want you to feel loved. And we want you to feel safe and loved as you sit with us under God's word and hear his mind about divorce. Thank you for coming out tonight to hear this word, even though for you it has an additional edge to it. Thank you for blessing us by being with us. Because today we want to know more about marriage and divorce and how we can best care for one another and obey God's good word. Well, last week we talked about marriage. We looked at marriage because it's in this bit of the Bible. And we heard that sex in marriage is good and that the man is to give his body to his wife and the woman to give her body to her husband. And as they do that, it will help them both avoid sexual immorality. And that all sounded good and relatively normal, but in fact it wasn't that normal for those who heard about it in the first century. Uh, we have this strange idea that sex between a husband and a wife can actually be for pleasure. And that was weird in the first century. Not so weird now, of course. But in the first century, amongst those in particular in the Greco-Roman world, sex was generally conducted with their spouse for procreation, for having babies. Now, it's not that they didn't have sex. They just had sex with pretty much everyone else except their spouse, whether that was their slaves, as it was often the case, or the prostitutes, or really anybody else. Which means that what we've been hearing from Paul, from God, about marriage is controversial, and certainly was in the first century. He also said some words to them about singleness. He said in verse 8 of chapter 7, I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. 
we've just come to this point, and this is how we ended the previous section last week. And in it, basically, Paul said, singleness is best, but marriage is still fine. And that's the context with which we then launch to this next bit that we're looking at tonight. Now he is going to address the marrieds. And he switches to a slightly different topic. Uh, have a listen and see if you can work out just how it fits in with what we just heard. He says in verse 10 of chapter 7, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. Uh, Paul switches to the whole issue of leaving marriages, divorcing. And he keeps addressing that until verse 16, and then he keeps talking about that a little bit more also right up to the end of the passage in verse 24 today. But as we get to this bit, can you see on the screen, it starts by saying, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. What's he talking about there? Well, earlier in verse 5, Paul said, don't deprive each other of sexual relations. And in verse 6, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I mentioned last week that, that I think that he's sort of saying that he's giving us some wisdom there. He's saying this is not a a rock-solid command under every single circumstance, but are words of wisdom that we should take seriously as spirit-filled Christians. But in verse 10, he does dial it up a notch, because he says there, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. What's he mean there? Well, I think he's thinking specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to Jesus' teaching on marriage. And these are the commands that come from the Lord Jesus, not merely words of wisdom, but commands. Let me read out to you a few verses from Matthew 19, just to have clear in our heads what Paul expected the Corinthians to have clear in their heads. Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? The people asked. Well, Jesus replied, Well, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. See, Paul goes right back to that command when he talks about marriage and divorce and he talks about a word from the Lord. That is the grounding upon which the Paul would say to the Corinthians, a wife must not leave her husband. It's very clear and very absolute. That's how Jesus spoke of marriage. But Jesus also said that divorce was once permitted, but only because people had hard hearts. And from there he said that divorce and remarriage was like adultery. But he did have an exception there. He said, unless his wife has been unfaithful. And so... The bond of marriage remains a bond unless there's the case of unfaithfulness. 
And so marriage is a bond that is broken by unfaithfulness. See, if one of the two people in the marriage commits unfaithfulness, then Jesus considers the marriage so broken that divorce is now an option. This is the command that Paul echoed as he referred to Jesus' command. So if a person commits adultery, that person has broken their marriage vows by defiling the marriage bed. And that breach of trust and promise provides an opening for divorce if the couple chooses to go down that pathway. This ultimately is a sad but an understandable outcome for those broken vows. But clearly this does not mean that Jesus thinks it's fine for a couple to break their marriage because one of them feels unhappy. And certainly it's not a case that one of them could break the marriage if they felt attracted to somebody else and wanted to marry somebody else than they're already married too. And that's what Paul makes very clear in the next verse. Verse 11, he says, But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Uh, basically, if they separate for reasons that are not related to marital unfaithfulness, then the separation needs to continue as a separation or they need to try and get the marriage back together. They can't split up because they're just unhappy and then divorce and then remarry. And that is because marriage matters too much. And more than that, divorce is just too awful to embrace lightly. But it's interesting because in the first century I read that divorces were very common. In fact, most marriages did end up in divorce eventually when they, they kind of stopped being useful. The idea of till death us do part or it was not really very common at all. And so this idea that the Christian marriage was for life is really uncultural, countercultural. You only divorced the marriage, if you're a Christian, if it was broken by infidelity. But otherwise, Christians were to remain married for life, to one person only, of the opposite sex. That's how it works, pure and simple. And all this is really interesting and important, and it's really good it's in the Bible. But why exactly did Paul write these things just here, as he's been going through this stuff from chapter 6 about sexual immorality and then and about, about what to do if you, if you, you know, how, how do you, how does he, why does he talk about these different things right here? Well, it seems because he's been talking about the issues of sexual immorality and in particular the issue of an unbeliever being united to a believer. Because earlier on he said that if a believer has sex with an unbeliever, it, it defiles the church. And so what they needed to work out was how to manage their mixed marriages. And I'm talking about a marriage here between a person who follows Jesus and a person who doesn't. That's the issue that he's now addressing. And so he says in verse 15, don't you realise, back in chapter 6, don't you realise that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. But how does that fit into Christian marriage? Well, 
the question arises, what if you're a follower of Jesus and you're married to someone who doesn't follow Jesus? You're united by sex with them, but you're not united to someone who doesn't follow Jesus. And that's a bit, well, it doesn't quite fit in with what he's been talking about in the previous chapter. That's why he now addresses it. So the obvious question is this, if that brings some sort of defilement, whatever, you know, then doesn't that mean that, that to tidy things up, all the Christians who are married to not Christians should just divorce them? No. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a correct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who's not a believer, and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And... If a believing woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. In other words, if there's a marriage between a follower of Jesus and someone who's not a follower of Jesus, God is not saying, oh, just split them up, saying, no, 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 stick together. And the bottom line is, don't divorce an unbeliever to pursue holiness if the unbeliever is happy to stay married to the Christian, don't break it up. This is the stuff he's talking about. But what about this issue of holiness, of purity, of, of someone who is a believer with an unbeliever and all that kind of stuff? Well, he answers that and he shows it why it's not an issue. He says in verse 14, For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. So that's the answer. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you bring holiness to your spouse, who's not a follower of Jesus. And what's more, your kids come along for the holiness ride as well. It's really interesting, isn't it? Here is a very practical solution, a very practical answer to their question. If you're a follower of Jesus and your spouse isn't, Stick at it. And you don't need to break it up to be holy. In fact, the opposite is true. But why is that the case? How does this all work? Well, we're not specifically told here, but I think it's got to do with how households work for God's people. You know, in the Old Testament, the whole household would belong to the Lord. And the whole household would be part of his covenantal community. See, God thinks in terms of households. And I reckon that flows across into the New Testament as well. You see, the whole family was God's family, no matter how old they were. And that's why when the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 was converted, we read in verse 33 that at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds, and then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptised. The whole household was sort of washed by baptism in the one time. There was this, this sign of them being God's house was shown by them all getting baptised. And that's, as an aside, one of the reasons why I love baptising babies. Because it, it's, a, it's a very physical way for us to show that the people in our household are part of the family of God. And then we say a prayer to ask God that they, when they grow up, would in fact say that faith and have that faith for themselves as their parents do. 
But anyway, the bottom of the line with all of this is if you're married to an unbeliever, don't break up the marriage because he or she is ceremonially holy. But what if a person does become a Christian and then their unbelieving spouse says, I can't cope with this, I don't like this. Well, verse 15. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, then let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. And so if the unbeliever leaves, then you, the believer, are free. And part of the reason is that God has called us to live in peace. And so by letting them go in that way, may we'll maintain the peace and perhaps provide some hope that they might eventually come to know Jesus as you do. And if the spouse does break up the marriage because they can't cope with you being a follower of Jesus, I'm sure that this verse says that you are free then to remarry. You're not bound to the other. That's what that means. Now, this all sounds very transactional, doesn't it, of course? But it would still be a separation and a divorce. And that, of course, will still hurt. It is so much better if the unbelieving spouse is able to remain married to the believing spouse. And so it's really important that the one who follows Jesus does everything possible to try and keep the marriage together. Why is that? Well, obviously... Divorce under any circumstance is horrible. But there's another even more practical and an optimistic reason. Verse 16 says, Don't you wives realise that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realise that your wives might be saved because of you? You see, when a person follows Jesus and they're married to someone who doesn't, uh, it's a special opportunity for the person who doesn't yet know Jesus to, to see what it's like for a follower of Jesus to follow Jesus. And I'm sure that the follower of Jesus is praying regularly, daily, all the time, that their spouse would join them in loving Jesus like they do. And so the command is clear. Stay married to your unbelieving spouse if you can. And in fact, in Peter's first letter, he has a particular command for wives. He says in chapter 3, 1 and 2, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands, and then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words, and they'll be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. We want to avoid divorces. And we also want to have conversions. We want everybody to know the Lord Jesus Christ, including spouses who don't just yet. And so if, if you happen to be a person who doesn't follow Jesus, whether you're in the room or you're watching on our live stream, and yet your spouse is a follower of Jesus, you can be sure that they're praying for you, that they're praying that you will know Jesus like they do, and that you will love Jesus like they do. And that you will see why they love Jesus more than you and so that you might love Jesus more than them as well. That is their prayer. And if you do watch on the live stream with them, as I know some of you do, and if you come to church with your 
believing spouse and you're not yet a believer, as some people do in this church, I, I want to say to you, we, we are so thrilled that you are part of our congregation and we are so pleased that you love your wife so much to support them or you love your husband so much to support them by coming along. But before we move to the next bit of this passage, let me just reflect upon whether or not it's wise for Christians to date non-Christians, to go out with non-Christians. In the New Testament, it doesn't explicitly say, you must not marry an unbeliever. And it certainly doesn't talk about going out because it doesn't talk about going out at all. It wasn't really a thing for the last few hundred years. It does say, however, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6, that we shouldn't be yoked or, or teamed up with an unbeliever. And I, and I think that does apply. That principle applies to people who are wanting to, to date or marry unbelievers. But I actually think that this particular passage is the most helpful word on all of this. Because this particular passage shows us how to deal with a problem. And the problem is, what if you're married to someone who doesn't love Jesus like you do? And I take it that because it is a problem that needs to be dealt with, that you don't want to be getting yourself into that problem if you have a choice. It's saying, if you've got the problem that you're married to an unbeliever, or you've got the problem that you're going out with an unbeliever, it's like, well, if you've got a choice, then don't go down that line. See, I think the wise thing for Christians is to not go out with an unbeliever. Don't go out with an unbeliever. Because if you do date and marry them, you'll be in the very situation that was causing all this concern for the Apostle Paul and to the Corinthians. And you're putting it yourself in a situation that makes it harder for you to remain faithful to God. Now, if you've done that and you're in a marriage where you're uh, married to someone who's not a believer, then, well, that ship has sailed and all the other stuff we've talked about applies very directly to you. But if you're not yet locked in in that situation, hear these wise words from the Scriptures. Because I think it's fair to say that whilst the flirt to convert strategy sometimes works, there are so many stories about where it has failed and the person who once was a Christian is taken down by those who never was, never was a Christian. Well, we've got eight verses still to go, but we're going to cover them a lot faster. And all of these eight verses basically spell out what verse 17 says. And that is, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord's placed you and remain as you were when the God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Basically, as he's telling the Corinthians, he's told all the other churches that when you come to know to Jesus, stay in the situation you're in when you're converted. And this is actually why I think that if a person becomes a Christian and they happen to be in a de facto relationship, I think that they should remain in that relationship or feel okay to remain in that relationship. They should get married to that person because I think they're already in a situation where they are a couple. But if they do decide to split up the de facto relationship because they realise that one of them is following Jesus and the other person doesn't want to and that's a problem, then I think their situation is different to being formally married. But how does this whole situation of staying in the situation you're in, you're in when you're converted actually 
relate to marriages with unbelievers. Well, verses 18 and 19, it says, A man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it, and the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. This is perhaps not something you give a lot of thought to, circumcision or not, but it did matter a lot in the first century and especially to those who were from a Jewish background. Uh, the point of all this is, ultimately, circumcision doesn't matter. What does matter is that we keep God's commandments to flee sexual immorality and, and, and don't divorce un except under the circumstances in which he says and the other things as well. But there's another circumstance that people have been put in and he mentions it here in verse 20. He says, Each of you should remain as you were when you, God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. You see, he tells them to get out of slavery if you can. Because uh, if you've got a master who keeps wanting to have sex with you and you're a slave, you've got no choice, do you? It's interesting, in Corinth, I'm told, that about a third of the people were slaves. Imagine that. One third of the people in Corinth were slaves. Another third were originally slaves but had now been set free. And then the remaining third were not slaves. So slavery wasn't just a weird thing like, oh, you've got a slave. Oh, I haven't met one of those in real life before. It's like, no, two-thirds of them either were or are. And so slavery was everywhere and very common. And Paul says, Christians, get freed if you can. But whether you can or can't, Paul says, verse 22, look, if you were a slave and the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. And if you're free when the Lord called you, well, actually, you've become a slave, a slave of Jesus. <laughs> you see, uh, basically, God paid a high price, verse 23, so don't be enslaved by the world. So whether you are free or a slave or slave or free or whatever, the point of all of this is you've been given freedom, but don't be enslaved by the world, verse 23. Our world wants to enslave us. The world wants us to see the world its way. The world wants to distort God's truth and lead us away from him. And one of the ways that the world gets things so wrong, I think, is in marriage. And particularly in divorce. See, the world has a distorted view of divorce. The idea that you can marry and divorce someone like it's like buying and selling a house or even buying and selling a car. That is tragic and it is distorted. God hates divorce. We hate divorce. And whether you're divorced or not, we're all impacted by divorce. Some of those divorces were unfortunate but necessary. Some divorces happened because a spouse broke their vows by adultery. Some divorces happen because a spouse broke their vows by abuse. Some divorces happen because a spouse deserted the marriage. Divorce affects all of us, some much more than others, of course. But all of us are affected in one way or another. 
And so it's a fresh reminder tonight that we, with God, should hate divorce. And we, with God, should love all who have endured divorce as together we await the time when we will all experience life with Christ as his bride in glorious spiritual marriage that will never end in tears. And so, brothers and sisters, hate divorce and cling to Christ.